when you think about a university campus, we have so many fields that of inquiry that our species has created. We're very enamored with ourselves, right? We're interested in our markets and economics. We're interested in our languages and linguistics. We're interested in our society and the relics that we leave behind in anthropology and our documents and history and literature. And I think it's really interesting to think about biological material being another line of inquiry with which to study how humans have changed over time. I think that human evolution, you know, has to draw individuals from different areas to its study because of the fact that we can't replay the tape that led to the evolution of our species. And so we have to rely on multiple lines of evidence. And that I think is, is very exciting. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Sohini Ramachandran, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Brown University in the US. Since July 2021, she is also the Director of Brown University's Data Science Initiative and has served as Director of the Center for Computational Molecular Biology from July 2017 to July 2022. Prior to beginning her faculty appointment at Brown University, she spent three years as a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, as a postdoctoral fellow in Professor John Wakeley's group at the Harvard University Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology. Suhini Ramachandran was a fellow within the Natural Science Program here at SCAS during the spring of 2019. The research in the Ramachandran lab addresses problems in population genetics and evolutionary theory via inference from and analysis of present-day genomes. We talked about some of her research and related issues when we met in the SCAS studio in May this year, 2022. And this is the third episode in our theme, Genetics and Evolution. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yeah, so first, thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight to discuss my research program here and also to revisit my time at SCAS, which was a very enjoyable chapter in my professional life. And I'm still thinking about many of the ideas that I was proposing to think about when I came to SCAS in, in 2019. I, as you said, am a faculty member at Brown University. I've been there since 2010 when I began my research group, and I am a human population geneticist. This means that I study genetic variation within our own species, and I do that using genomes of people living today, although increasingly in our field, we also use information from bones, uh, which may be from modern humans, from thousands of years ago, um, or from archaic hominins. And that's a real strength at Uppsala University, which was one of the things that drew me to SCAS initially. I'm very interested in developing statistical methods to understand both the causes and the consequences of human genetic variation. So what are the evolutionary processes that have created the genetic diversity in our species? And how can we 
use an understanding of those evolutionary processes in order to predict, say, health outcomes for individuals or develop better therapies in order to improve people's quality of life. And I do this, as you also mentioned, with a multidisciplinary approach. But another feature of being a human geneticist who considers evolution is to also be a historian using the genome as a kind of text. So that, I think, is why I've always been really drawn to interdisciplinary communities like the one one finds here at SCAS, because I often think of myself as part computer scientist, part statistician, part historian, and also interested in lots of problems that have to do with human communities and medical treatment. That is very interesting how we can touch upon so many different things in society through the topic of genetics. So then very broadly, you mentioned a couple of things already, but if you would sum up your research a bit broadly and a bit fast for our audience. (laughs) Maybe we'll go back to the phrase causes and consequences. So when I first got interested in genetics, it was because population genetics, so the study of the evolutionary processes that produce and maintain genetic variation in a species, is a field that is only just over 100 years old. The first papers that created the field were published in the early 20th century, around 1908. And they were published by people who were also considered to be the founders of modern statistics. So it's since its roots always been a very mathematical and statistical field. And I was very interested in mathematics as a young person. And that was how I kind of got exposed to genetic variation as a kind of information that one could measure and quantify. And I thought it was very interesting that you could develop mathematical metrics by which to compare genomes. When I started graduate school, it was right after the sequencing of the human genome, the first draft sequence that was published. And the initial question I was interested in was, well, how is this one reference genome going to actually be relevant for all humans living today and for the diversity of humankind. And that was what my graduate lab was really focused on, is trying to both quantify human genetic variation and understand how it came to be. So we used population genetic theory to develop different methods to infer the deep history of our species on the order of tens of thousands of years, and really to show that modern humans originated in Africa and spread from Africa in a very kind of systematic way that left a very strong signature in, in genomes that still has a signature in all of our genomes today. But then as I, as I started my own research group, I became interested in the consequences of this. So what I mean by that is, how did these population dynamics that our ancestors underwent in the last 100,000 years since our species emerged and since the major human diaspora out of Africa happened, That involved large-scale migrations, separation into isolated groups, coming together again during colonization and imperialism through slavery. It involved battling lots of pathogens, creating new diets, um, evolving to live in a range of latitudes. And all of that required some genetic adaptability and also meant facing some deleterious mutations and having those either persist or get removed from from populations. So I started to think about how the dramatic population dynamics our species has had also shapes the way that natural selection can influence our genomes and started to think about 
how both beneficial mutations and deleterious mutations could be detected in humans using our understanding of deep human history. And then through that, I got interested in the question of genetic trait architecture and the extent to which we can resolve it from large data sets of both genetic data and medical data from people living today. Because the promise of genomics has always been, since that first draft sequence was published, to make personalized medicine a reality. And that's obviously an incredibly important problem. It's also one that I would say over 20 years later, we're still working hard on and probably haven't made as much progress as we would like to. So there's still a lot of puzzles about how exactly our genome influences our susceptibility to disease and our response to therapies that I look forward to working on for the rest of my career. Yes. I also remember when the when the first draft sequence was uh, published, I was also a PhD student then. First of all, it seemed sort of unreal that they had actually succeeded with this. And then there were all these promises that this will cure all diseases and so on. Maybe I can ask you, why is this important? Why should we know more about our DNA and our ancestry and everything that you have talked about now? I think about that question in, in two different ways. One is that human evolutionary or human population genetics, uh, I was inherently drawn to it, like I said, because of its interdisciplinarity. And you know, when you think about a university campus, we have so many fields that of inquiry that our species has created. We're very enamored with ourselves, right? We're interested in our markets and economics. We're interested in our languages and linguistics. We're interested in our society and the relics that we leave behind in anthropology and our documents and history and literature. And I think it's really interesting to think about biological material being another line of inquiry with which to study how humans have changed over time. I think that human evolution, you know, has to draw individuals from different areas to its study because of the fact that we can't replay the tape that led to the evolution of our species. And so we have to rely on multiple lines of evidence. And that I think is is very exciting. And I would say another piece of why I think we should be interested in this is that I think that our species has also a very interesting evolutionary history compared to other species. We have relatively little genetic diversity. We're quite similar, all of us, to each other. And again, our, our species has undergone quite dramatic population size changes, population growth following the development of agricultural technologies. And our migrations are kind of amazing compared to a lot of other species. So I think that actually can really overturn a lot of the things we think about in evolutionary biology. So most people, when they think of evolution, they think of Darwin and natural selection. It is a very important force in shaping genetic variation. But when you have dramatic population dynamics, that can actually thwart natural selection where you can lose a beneficial mutation quickly, or you can have in a population that's gotten quite small and then grown rapidly, a deleterious mutation persisting in a way that you wouldn't predict would make sense. And so I think that that intersection of our deep history with evolutionary processes is what makes studying human evolution quite quite special. And 
with changing climate, it could become something that's really important. Studying kind of dramatic changes, dramatic shifts could help us predict a little bit more about what will affect other organisms on Earth moving forward. Yeah, and of course we are we are very interested in ourselves, as you said, and in our history. Where where did we come from, and where we are going, we don't know, but we can investigate <laughs> how it all happened up to now. Well, and we've also influenced the trajectory of lots of other species through domestication, the animals we rely on, the plants that we rely on. And so that's another, I think, understanding our evolution also helps us see parallels in what we've brought other groups along with us, cattle, agricultural plants, dogs, even bacteria like H. pylori show lots of signatures of the migrations that we, our species has taken. So... Yeah, so I think there are lots of exciting reasons to be interested in this. Yeah, we actually had two previous episodes on this podcast. One was about uh, mace, endangered mace, and a lot about seed banks there also and the importance to preserve uh, seeds. And the other one was about the history of the potato, which was also very interesting. Yes, shall we get a little bit into ancestry maybe? But a good place to start there is, for example genome or genetic analysis by companies like 23andMe. And there are other companies offering to analyze DNA for different purposes, either if you want to know if you have a risk for certain diseases, if you want to know more about your heritage or just other things that your DNA can tell you, basically. So a lot of people have heard about this and maybe also used uh, these services. Can you tell us a little bit about these kind of analyses? What information can we get from it? These direct-to-consumer tests, as I'll call them, usually involve submitting saliva to a company, which is then run through a what we call a genotyping process, a process of reading some set of the DNA letters from your genome or one's genome. So maybe just for some background numbers, the human genome is about 3 billion base pairs long of DNA letters, A, C, T, and G. That's folded up in all of our cells and our bodies. It's the most amazing information storage device that's ever been created because all organisms on Earth have used it, essentially, that and RNA to reproduce since the first organisms evolved. But in these direct-to-consumer tests, usually now around a million of these sites are genotyped and the DNA letters are read and used for analysis. And what these companies rely on is the fact that as they get more and more customers, the inference that they can make about ancestry gets more and more granular. So it's a process that requires a large data set. And when companies like 23andMe first started, they used a lot of publicly available data, but now have millions of customers in their data set. And those customers survey responses about what they know about their own heritage from family stories and maybe photographs, maybe genealogy research that they've done with church records or legal records are part of what add information to the inference. A lot of what is being done by those companies is to do sort of a combination of statistical things. One is called a kind of supervised classification process. So again, You know, there are some data sets that initially were used where researchers had labeled where individuals are from, either because the data was gathered by anthropologists or human geneticists. 
So we had sort of ground truth there. And then there are customers who maybe know a lot about their family history. And so those labels are also used. And then these genotypes are, are run through sort of a series of different statistical approaches, dimensionality reductions, sometimes what's called a hidden Markov model to classify windows of chromosomes in different ancestries if a person has mixed ancestry. And then that can be used to time migrations. For a person who has ancestry from multiple sources, the more recent those ancestries mixed together, the longer those chromosomal blocks will be. So there's an inverse relationship between length and time. And so that can be used to date things like saying, oh, two generations ago, it appears that you had an ancestor that was from France, say, or from the Caribbean. So that is one aspect of what these companies do. But now many of them also, and many governmental efforts in different countries throughout the world, such as the UK, which has a UK biobank that contains data from half a million residents of the UK and their medical records, genetic data as well as medical record data. Um, Estonia has a biobank, Finland as well, called FinGen. Increasingly, what people want to use genetic data for is to understand better mutations that are associated with health outcomes or with biomarkers. And that's something that direct-to-consumer companies are also interested in. And so many of them also do, through surveys, studies of, say, predisposition to allergies, predisposition to adverse reactions to over-the-counter medicines like ibuprofen. So again, customers often provide a lot of data, and that can be used to do you know, incredibly precise uh, studies in, in some ways. I think 23andMe found a large effect mutation for myopia by asking customers if they got glasses before they were 16 or not, and then maybe one follow-up question, and they found a large effect mutation for myopia because of the size of their data set. So that's another kind of layer to, to what can be done with large data sets from customers by direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. Have you taken such a test yourself? Yes, I have done 23andMe's test, although I'll say their their genotyping chip has gotten much better. I did it a long time ago, um, but yes, I did. Did you find out anything that was a surprise? I did not. At the time, they did not actually have... I'm of South Asian origin. My parents and my sister were born in southern India and immigrated to the United States where I was born. At the time when I took the test, there wasn't a lot of data from South Asians, actually, so they couldn't quite pinpoint my continental ancestry. But in just the last few years, the data has gotten a lot better in that part of the world. But I didn't actually find out anything sort of surprising for myself. What about the legal and ethical aspects when, when doing this kind of test? What should both the companies and especially the consumers think about before you send off your saliva? I think... One thing that companies are thinking a lot about is what responsibility they have to report results to individuals. Actually, initially, 23andMe was told to cease and desist from reporting health results to its customers by our Federal Food and Drug Administration in the United States because it wasn't being transmitted by a doctor. They worked over time. They shut down you know, releasing anything about health to customers and then got approval to start doing that again. Part of that is because the field of genetic counseling, I think, became more prevalent and 
I shouldn't comment, maybe I don't have a lot of expertise on that particular case, but definitely these results are not being given with the context of physicians' expertise sometimes. So I think also companies are choosing which kinds of traits they are reporting back to individuals. For example, if they are able to study a trait that for which there's no real known treatment that might not be reported back to patients, probably isn't reported back to patients. But this comes up in the medical context as well. It's called an incidental finding. Sometimes an individual or a child often who presents with a difficult case to diagnose, presents with sort of a strange mixture of symptoms, is often has now their genome sequenced and, and maybe their parents also, if, if that's possible, to sequence both of their biological parents. And sometimes, you know, the diagnosis can then be made, but there's another finding that is potentially pathogenic. And, you know, often if there's no known treatment for that, the patients might not be informed of that. Again, I don't know a lot about the regulations on that. So I think there's a lot on the side of the either hospital or company that they need to think about with the ramifications of this. But I would say that we as people need to start thinking about our genome as a source of data. And that means that we should start trying to understand what it means to keep it private. You know, just like maybe we should think about our presence on social media or our credit and the way we may use financial institutions through our phones, through our computers. I think that genomic privacy is something that I personally didn't think enough about earlier, and now it's becoming clear that it's more and more relevant for people, partly because compared to, say, my presence online in an app like Facebook or Instagram, I can sort of change my presence in in that space and that social network, or I can alter, you know, make things more restrictive. But once your genetic data is in a data set, you can remove it, but you can never change the content of your genetic data. You can change, you know, your credit score, right? But you can't change the content of your genetic data. And it contains information about your ancestors and about your existing or future or hypothetical future descendants. And so I think that does create a lot of ethical challenges for people. It means that if you download and then upload your results from direct-to-consumer testing to an insecure website, it can be easily hacked. And this has happened in the United States. There is a data set or a website that was begun called GenMatch to help individuals find biological relatives who they might not have known. For example, adoptees often used this. And then that's been used by law enforcement in order to solve cold cases. And so that's something that individuals who are uploading their data to this website might not have have thought about. And actually, the hackability of some of these data sets is really quite, I mean, it's very easy because if the goal of, of a site is to say, well, if you upload a genome, my goal is to tell you if there's someone in this data set who might be your relative, you could even upload a fake genome and get that information. And that's actually something that people have done to show how easy it is to get sometimes even names and email addresses out of these sites. So I think that's something really important to think about. And then, you know, for people who are searching for relatives, sometimes they might find a close relative they didn't know existed. That comes with a lot of uh, social legal questions for individuals and, and just questions about, you know, what does kinship mean, right? Biological connection may not be the same as actual emotional connection. So 
it does bring up a lot of questions about what does it mean to be related? What does it mean to be a family? <laughs> sort of humanistic questions as well, which um, you know are important to consider. I can just imagine, I mean, if you all of a sudden find out you have relatives or even half sisters or brothers somewhere in the world, that of course raises a lot of questions. Staying a little bit in the ancestry sphere here, you have a project on ancient DNA and the connection to the X chromosome. Would you like to tell us a bit more about this project? What are you doing there? This is a project that we are uh, writing up now. It's um, being led by one of my graduate students named Elsie Gibson back in at Brown University. It's exciting to talk about here actually with you because the first threads of it began when I was a SCAS fellow. Again, part of why I was interested in coming to Uppsala and to, to SCAS is because of, well, We'll talk about SCAS maybe a little later and, and, you know, what a wonderful environment it is. But also, it happens to be located very close to the Evolutionary Biology Center at Uppsala University, which is an amazing department. And um, I have a colleague there in my field, Matthias Jakobsen, who I've been friends with for many years. He did his postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Michigan with Noah Rosenberg, who is an academic sibling of mine. And that's where Matthias and I first met because I collaborated extensively with Noah's group. And Matthias and I are actually co-authors from a years ago together. So when I came here, it was partly because I wanted to visit his human evolution group and learn more about the study of ancient DNA. So this is DNA that's been amplified from bones, often found in um, archaeological grave sites, sometimes very interesting contexts, sometimes you know, mass burials or ancient tombs. And there are a lot of the best data, although the human evolution group at Uppsala University is, is working on increasing the diversity of, of ancient DNA by doing a lot of sampling in Africa specifically, but also the Philippines. A lot of this data is best preserved in Europe because of the climate so that allows the DNA to be preserved well in bone. And this DNA is difficult to work with because it's often quite degraded, even when it's well preserved. And so the technology to amplify it is really hard to use well, and there are not that many places in the world that are good at it, but Uppsala is one of them. So what's interesting about ancient DNA is that it lets us look into the past in a way that we can't with present-day genomes. It lets us get even more data from past time points, which we can calibrate with radiocarbon dating. And what we've learned is that, especially when we look at some of our closest relatives who are not homo sapiens, but are archaic hominins like Neanderthals, we've learned that there are pieces of their DNA that continue to exist in modern humans today. And that, that means that even though the Neanderthal species has been completely replaced by modern humans, there are still some aspects of their DNA that are beneficial enough to continue segregating in our genomes. So it turns out that the genomes of modern humans today still persist some amount of archaic hominin DNA, about usually in the average European ancestry person, about 5% of the genome may be shared with Neanderthal. But in some parts of the genome, this tract, this, uh, the length of the Neanderthal sequence is quite long. And that suggests that that Neanderthal DNA might actually be beneficial. And it turns out that there are certain immune genes in which individuals are enriched for Neanderthal DNA. Also, there's a really interesting case that was first 
written about by one of my colleagues at Brown, Emilio Huerta Sanchez, which is an archaic hominin piece of DNA that enables adaptation to high altitude in people living in Tibet. And that was discovered in 2014. So lots of people are interested in, in this question of, you know, how did humans and Neanderthals interact? How did Neanderthals get replaced? And what the genetic material that was exchanged kind of has meant for our evolution. But a lot of the focus has been on trying to find beneficial mutations that we inherited from Neanderthals. Actually, only recently, I would say, that has shifted a little bit to thinking about, well, what if some of this material has been deleterious and is slowly getting removed from our genomes? So this has led to the search for what's called introgression deserts. Introgression is when one species inherits DNA from another, and a desert of introgression is when you have the absence of DNA from that other species. So in fact, if you look at the modern human genome and places where we've observed Neanderthal DNA, it's not randomly distributed throughout the genome. There are certain parts of the genome that are deficient in Neanderthal DNA, and one of these is the X chromosome. I think that's a really interesting puzzle. The X chromosome in humans is held in two copies in genetic females, and it's held in one copy for genetic males. It's also inherited such that a genetic female gets a copy of one X chromosome from each biological parent, while a genetic male only inherits the maternal X chromosome. The X is also a strange chromosome in other ways, not just its inheritance. So it's our eighth largest chromosome, but it is actually very gene poor. It has very much fewer genes than we would expect based on its size. And because there's only one copy in genetic males, any deleterious mutation gets unmasked in that state, which means that it's actually stronger, subject to stronger selection against deleterious mutations than other parts of the genome. So I would say human geneticists don't often study the X chromosome in an evolutionary context because it requires some special handling as a data type. You know, the, the models all have to be altered because of the mode of inheritance and the copy number is different and it just has less data compared to all the all the 22 autosomes. Uh, so, or the non-sex chromosome. So, I got interested in this question of, you know, why is it that the X chromosome has less Neanderthal DNA and whether that might be because of the actual nature of the human Neanderthal intergression event. Did that involve sex bias? So were there, say, more males coming from the modern human side, more females coming from the Neanderthal side? And the reason why I wondered that is because that's actually been a signature of mixture events in human history. So if you think about things that happened during slavery or colonization in the Americas, for example, often what we see as a result of those events in, say, indigenous Americans is that the X chromosome is more likely to have indigenous ancestry, whereas the autosomes might be a mixture of European and indigenous ancestry. Similarly, individuals who identify as African-American in the U.S. Will, are let, have more African ancestry on their X chromosome than on their autosomes, again, consistent with more female African ancestors and some male European ancestors. And so this question of sex bias in the human Neanderthal integration event has only been touched on by a couple of studies, but not explicitly modeled and studied along with other aspects of the X chromosome. So that 
idea all started from 2019 when I was here attending meetings at the EBC and learning more about how people think about ancient DNA. And then I got interested in this question of, again, the intersection of deep historical population dynamics with um, natural selection. That's very interesting. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, so you said you're just writing up the paper. Can you tell us something about your main findings there? Our main finding is that natural selection against deleterious variation alone does not explain the lack of Neanderthal DNA on the X chromosome relative to the autosome. So it's not just a story about selection and the fact that the X is subject to stronger natural selection. It's not just a story about sex bias either. <laughs> it's a combination. And in fact, it's a combination of sex bias in the introgression event, but then also sex bias in modern humans ourselves. So again, because of the biology of having children, a female is likely to have fewer male partners, um, whereas a um, male can have many children through many, many females. So there's a lot of sex bias also in, in our own species that has then propagated with the sex bias of the introgression event to produce this outcome. But a really interesting piece that we're just, I mean, literally this week, <laughs> part of what we're trying to do is tease apart is that, in fact, we think that in indigenous American groups, particularly because of their mixed ancestry, archaic hominin DNA has been broken up by admixture events more than we might expect. And so we're, we're trying to tease that apart now. But the level of Neanderthal DNA on human X chromosomes varies by geographic region. And that's really not been examined closely before. So that's the story that we're trying to understand now. And definitely modern human admixture is also playing a role in that signal in the Americas. Yeah, I look forward to finalizing that. And uh, you know, I think it'll be an exciting result. It sounds like you like the complex questions in, in life and in biology. Well, I think actually often I'm drawn to projects that can be stated really simply to start. So in this case, I would say, you know, why is there less Neanderthal DNA on the X chromosome? But then it becomes really complex once you start poking at it. So yeah, I think in general... Well, lots of research questions are more complex than they first seem, but I think especially that's what really excites me about genetics. I think, as you mentioned when we, when we started talking, when the human genome was first sequenced, I think it was strange to think about, are all diseases going to be solved somehow? And yet it was exciting. And, you know, sometimes, I guess it depends on the day. Sometimes when I look back over the last 20 years, I think, I wish we were further along, but then also it's exciting to think the same questions can still be interesting 20 years later. So when you study ancestry, you can probably see differences between different groups in the population. Are there any problems with that? And how can the results be misused or misinterpreted? I think part of what draws me to study human genetics is, in fact, how similar we all are. Each pair of humans, on average, only differs in one in every thousand base pairs of DNA, 0.1% of this three billion base pair genome. So, you know, we're all really, really similar, which is, I think, very, very important and exciting to think about, especially considering how many people there are in the world that we're all so similar. 
But at the same time, it's true that genetics has been used for over a century now, maybe longer in many ways, to reinscribe differences between people, to, for some, underscore incorrect ideas that, you know, some people are superior to other people. And I think that even these uh, direct-to-consumer tests that we've talked about, there is a tension between the story and the history that a person and their family might have of their past and then kind of reporting, well, actually, your biological data might say something different, right? And both of those things can kind of be true in a way. And what does that tension actually mean for that person, for that family? You know, I think a lot of the studies that I've been involved with over the years have gotten more and more sensitive to the fact that People's self-identified ancestry can be quite different from their biological ancestry, especially for individuals of mixed ancestry, and that that is important to recognize and to value both of those pieces of data. And I think that it is worrying how there are ways that I think genetic studies are used. I mean, I know they are used by extremists to validate racist ideas, ideas of superiority of some groups over others. And that's something that I actually am really starting to think about with my lab. How can we try to make a difference? How can we try to make very clear in our talks, in our presentations, and even in our visualizations, which I think is really important, the context in which these results should be interpreted? So Unfortunately, in the United States, a lot of white nationalist groups are very interested in genetics papers and interested in genetic studies that focus on behavioral traits like IQ or, or educational attainment. And I think a lot of these studies have really important flaws. And, and sometimes those are discussed very, very clearly in the, in the paper. But the uptake of the research by some of these groups is really alarming. And I think as researchers, we, we can't just look the other way, especially because these results are being used to fuel violence. Most recently in the shooting that happened in Buffalo, New York, it happened actually when I was here at SCAS and the Christchurch mosque shooting. The manifesto of that shooter also mentioned that genetic research, she said haplogroups and genomes reveal that there are differences between individuals. And in, in time, the truth will be known, you know, when the idea that people are using science in order to reify these racist notions is, is really disturbing. And I think it's really important for researchers to know that and to try to think about ways that in the publicity in our research and the way we conduct our research that we need to do our best to battle that. Well, that there are always going to be people who interpret things and you know misinterpret things, right, in extreme ways. I think what's unique about this and there have been some really good studies by a young researcher in my field named Jedediah Carlson, a sort of meta-research studies about the groups that are interested in population genetics. What he's shown is that in social media and things, the way that population genetics research is consumed, it's not, it's not that it's being denied the way like climate change denial might happen. It's that it's actually being avidly consumed as a supporting inaccurate idea as extremist ideas. So that is something that I think as a society we should try to think about that kind of misinformation when it's actually an extreme interpretation of 
of something as opposed to just an ignorance about it or recasting it inaccurately. Yeah, I mean, it's problematic. I mean, even in this town, Uppsala University had an institution or a department for race biology before. It's not that long ago. So obviously these ideas have been around and certain ideas have been used and misused. Is there something that you can do to be proactive about these ideas? Because, I mean, you want to do your research, of course, but then there will always be people who misuse it, maybe misinterpret it also in some way. Is there something you can do about that? This is a question I'm thinking a lot about right now, and I think many people are in my field. I think it's easy to turn away and say, well, I'm just doing science, and, you know, this isn't my responsibility. But again, I think for myself, I'll say I feel like I can't have that stance anymore because this is really (laughs) disturbing Um, to me, like when research is being used to motivate violence. That said, it is hard to know what impact individuals can have. But the thing I've been thinking a lot about is the way that research gets publicized. So the way that press releases get written the way that journals decide what articles to publicize and institutions decide what, what articles to publicize. You know, obviously, also science writers who work for communications offices are doing their best as well. But sometimes when there are really potentially challenging interpretations to the research or important caveats that the researchers recognize, sometimes they write their own blog posts about it or have their own FAQs that accompany the article, that can kind of get left out of the press release. And so, I think one of the things that I would like to promote is thinking about the ethical implications of work at the publicity stage, especially, and thinking about how, you know, news outlets might really take some time to acknowledge the ethical issues of the work and to get quotes from the authors about that, because often I think the authors are discussing that, but it's just not maybe the most exciting part, but it is, in fact, I think, a very important part of the of the work. I do think another piece of it is ancient DNA has done a great job of bringing geneticists and archaeologists together to collaborate. And that also has, I think, created more insight into the context in which a lot of the data is found and understanding that context and what it means to, to do the sampling, because ancient DNA sampling is destructive. The bone has to be destroyed to get the DNA out. So I think similarly, there are a lot of studies in behavior genetics, which is interested in the genetic basis of behavioral traits like addiction or you know educational outcomes, things like that, involving ethicists in that very early on to shape the work and involving people from sociology and not just biologists, I think is, is another way to start to make sure that the work isn't over-interpreted or that the biological basis of the study or of the trait in question isn't isn't over-exaggerated. Because also with a lot of behavioral traits, there are really important social interventions or there are really important environmental factors that mediate a person's experience with addiction or experience with an educational system or a healthcare system. And I think we really need to acknowledge those things in the formation of the study and the way that it's done as well. So I think there's a lot that geneticists, you know, learn from interdisciplinary work and hopefully interdisciplinary communication will help to push against this misappropriation of work.
that brings us directly into interdisciplinarity. <laughs> so we can just stay there. Uh, you said previously that you see genetics as a highly interdisciplinary field. You think of it like that yourself. Shall we just dive a bit deeper into that? So how do you work there? I mean, you're a geneticist, you do your analysis and your population genetics, but then how do you bring other disciplines into your work? The fact that the analysis is mathematical and, and computational, it sort of starts starts from, from day one. But I would say that, again, you know, population genetics, it's a space that brings inherently an interdisciplinary set of individuals to it, sort of a motley crew. So the the founders were also important statisticians. Many people used to, you know, studied mathematics or physics. When my advisor, Mark Feldman, started his lab at, at Stanford, he was one of the first people to be hired in a biology department as a faculty member who had no bench lab, what is now called a dry lab. He was one of the first theoreticians actually in a biology department, and his PhD was in mathematics. And then he trained you know, many people like me where our undergraduate degree was in something like math or physics or statistics, and then we did our PhD in a, in a biology department. So I think some of it is, is bringing that foundational curriculum from studying something like computer science or mathematics and thinking about um, maybe models or data but as kind of an abstraction, but then bringing it to biological questions. And I think in the location of my lab at Brown University now, we have computational biology and also now data science. It's a really exciting community because we are all familiar with each other's tools, the quantitative tools, but we're all using them for very, very different questions. And I think when you bring people together in a scientific interdisciplinary community who can kind of speak the same language in terms of the methods they're using, but are using those methods to very different ends, I think that can create some really exciting collaborations. So for me, that's part of what has drawn me to trait architecture, because when I first came to Brown, I had a colleague in computer science who was interested in cancer biology and interested in thinking about tumors as networks and trying to understand oncogenic mutations that were driving tumor genesis and what the passenger mutations were. And then when he and I met, I said, well, you know, this is also an evolutionary problem. You can think about a tumor as a population of cells, and you're trying to identify sort of selection signal of mutations that are beneficial for the tumor, for that population to grow, and other mutations that are just sort of along for the ride, which in genetics we would call hitchhikers. And so we kind of combined his work with networks and graphs that was from a sort of very theoretical kind of mathematical computer science side with his understanding of cancer, but then moved it into other quantitative traits in, in humans using evolutionary ideas. I do a lot of work with a close colleague in statistics, and we think about how to use machine learning techniques, but leverage our understanding of how genes in the genome interact with each other and how mutations are located in genes in order to create these, we call them biologically aware neural networks, which is really exciting work. I think in general, you know, the study of natural populations from the genetic standpoint, it just has to be interdisciplinary because as we talked about earlier, since we can't ever truly know how a natural population got to be genetically the way it is, we just have to rely on other other things. And those can be written historical records, they can be languages, they can be archaeological surveys, climate data, but it sort of requires that that interaction. 
I guess the last thing I'll say about interdisciplinarity, and this is something I've seen a lot in my colleagues in computational biology in my field, is that I think, especially now in the age of sort of machine learning and artificial intelligence as terms that everyone is sort of talking about, the fact that even companies like Google and Facebook have recast themselves as artificial intelligence companies, as Alphabet and Meta now. There's the sense that the artificial intelligence revolution is about to happen. And, you know, maybe maybe in another 10 years, I'll be eating my words and saying, oh, my gosh, it totally happened. But I think that part of what we don't talk enough about is the importance in quantitative work of the feedback between methods and data and understanding the data and the context in which it's generated and the feedback that that creates for making methods that are you know, motivated by a particular problem and by trying to create change to solve that problem is, I think, where the juiciest work happens. When we don't have that, that's when we end up in kind of ethical pickles and, you know, tampering with election results and things like that, or consequences of data that we, like the privacy of genomes that we didn't anticipate. And I think that um, that interdisciplinarity between methods and data is really important. And in a university context, I think that means that conversations between people who think very quantitatively with people who think about data, not just as points, but as, say, individuals' tax records or individuals' genomes or individuals' outcomes on a test, like that really can really change the interpretation of the work and make it more meaningful and make it have a bigger impact, which is really what any researcher wants. So I, I find that the longer I'm in my career, the more the biology is what draws me to new problems as opposed to, you know, oh, this data is so exciting and I just want to kind of get my hands on the data. It's really asking, you know, what what is studying this data going to help me learn about the biology of genomes? So you have been a fellow here at SCAS in the spring of 2019. So what was your experience while being here, especially of the interdisciplinary environment? <laughs> I'm always drawn to interdisciplinary communities. You also mentioned when I was at Harvard in the Society of Fellows, that was another interdisciplinary community, a lot like SCAS. We were all postdoctoral fellows, but um, our fields ranged from classics and history to physics and biology. And when I was here... I was the only scientist that semester of the non-profitura fellows. Of course, we all interacted with each other, but it was early in the natural sciences program. So it was really exciting for me because I got to hear talks that I wouldn't normally have listened to. And, and I got to think about them, I think, through the lens of genetics. And then when I was talking about my work also, I got to hear from people like um, Bruce Crothers about how my groupthink effect, you know, some of the work that's happening in direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I got to talk with Sophia Loden about whether the ancestry of Parsifal ever was discussed in the Legends of King Arthur that she was working on. And we talked about, you know, this idea of, yeah, sometimes we have these stories of hero that comes from another land and comes and, you know, is the one who wins the war for the kingdom and that that can come up in these medieval legends. But I think, you know, one of the reasons I love interdisciplinary communities is 
I think it forces researchers in any field, but especially in science, to think hard about communication and to see commonalities across problems. And it was only by being in my interdisciplinary postdoc that I started to think about think about the work that we do in population genetics as the work of a historian. And it's sort of using a document, using a genome as a document, as a text with which to study the past and to study changes in a time and a place. And that metaphor has been really important to my research life. <laughs> but I think the challenge of every day at lunch trying to talk about your work in a way that a lot of smart people who are not at all in the field can understand it and maybe provide insight on a problem. It's really helpful. And I think that it made me take new risks in my research program over the last few years, which have been really exciting. I would say my research diversified a lot after being at SCAS. And I think a lot of that was our our group and and the lunchtime conversations we had that just made me sit back and and think a little bit differently about some of the problems I was working on. Yeah, I agree that the lunch conversations are great. I mean, you you don't know what you will learn <laughs> when you step in there, but you will come out with something new, with some new knowledge. Yes. Gives you a different perspective. I really enjoy that as well when I'm here to visit. Yeah, sometimes you learn the idea you've been thinking about was thought about in another field a while ago. Like um, one of the things Bruce and I talked about is uh, along the lines of biological networks. I have been working for a while on a problem of looking at polarized networks, parts of a network that don't interact with each other commonly, but sometimes have rare connections. And that idea has you know, come up a long time ago in sociology, which is called co-option, where you know one field maybe has a term that they use a lot and then suddenly gets used by another field and that becomes a, a sort of quick connection. And I hadn't ever thought about it that way. So But that actually turned out to be important for some work that I'm doing on the misuse of scientific terms against vaccination and how that makes it across uh, social networks. Suddenly I was led to a whole field of literature that I didn't know anything about. That's an example. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Suhini Ramachandran, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Brown University in the US and Fellow within the Natural Science Program at SCAS during the spring of 2019. This was the third episode in our theme, Genetics and Evolution. In the previous episodes within this theme, we have heard Helen Ann Curry about endangered maize and the importance of seed banks. And we have also heard Jenny Bowman and Maria Sevidio about new insights into speciation. These are episodes number 33 and 34. If you are interested in evolution, you might also want to listen to episode 27, where Jessica Abbott talks about her research on the evolution of sex chromosomes. Apart from genetics and evolution, we are currently also featuring episodes on gender, Latin America and also developmental issues and human rights. The list of podcast episodes and themes is growing. Our previous topics include the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, 
Life Science, Infrastructures and Asia, Citizen and State Relations. The variety of the themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Suhini Ramachandran once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.